All right. Well, uh, we have been studying together through the book of Jeremiah this summer, and uh, I don't know who or how many of you have kept up with the readings, uh, but the good news is, right, we finally reached that part of Jeremiah more familiar, I presume, to many of us uh, than the earlier sections, where there's some good news. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm relieved uh, because the first portion of Jeremiah, the first 20 or 22 chapters, is a lot of doom and gloom. Quite frankly, it's uh, a word of judgment, a word of discipline that's been delivered by Jeremiah to the people of God because of their rebellion, because of their sinfulness, because of their wickedness and their idolatry. And Jeremiah, as you know, has been uh, prophesying that they will be taken away into captivity by the Babylonians and they will suffer the consequences of their sin according to the covenant that they made with God. So we're going to pick up this morning and just uh, continue our reading. And uh, what I try to do each Sunday is to pick a passage from the previous week's readings. Uh, Although last Sunday we had God stories and there wasn't a message from Jeremiah, so that gave me a few extra readings to choose from. So I'm going to back you up all the way to Jeremiah 31, and we're going to read together uh, this well-known passage regarding the new covenant from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Would you stand with me as we declare the word of God? The word of the Lord from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. So our text this morning from Jeremiah 31 is a word of hope, a word of promise for the future. Of course, it was written by Jeremiah at a time when it was yet to be fulfilled. So for him, it was out the windshield. It was in the future. For us here, all these years later, its fulfillment is in the rearview mirror. We're looking back now in history at the fulfillment of of this promise that Jeremiah spoke hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth. So to help us get into the right frame of mind as we hear these words, I want you to listen with some fresh perspective. And to help you do that, let me, let me give you an illustration to kind of wrap your mind around. I recently, while I was on vacation, had the opportunity to spend a day in Washington, D.C., 
And you know, uh, if you've been to Washington, uh, it's the seat of our government, and it's a, a great place if you're interested at all in American history, particularly, because there are museums on every block. Now, on this particular occasion, we didn't actually go into any of the museums, though we've done that previously on many occasions. But just walking by them or riding by on a bicycle, I was acutely aware of all the history that was around me. History in the buildings, history in the, uh, in the people, and, and history that was held or captured in those museums. And then, of course, uh, to, to kind of intensify my awareness of all this, one night for fun, we thought, well, let's watch the National Treasure movies again. And so, you know, you watch this movie, and it's all about the stealing of the Declaration of Independence, which probably wouldn't ever happen. But anyway, it's fun to think about. And it got me, got me thinking about these documents that are so important to the foundation of our nation, our nation. So here's what I want you to imagine with me, all right? This is an exercise in creative imagination. I want you to just um, imagine for a moment that I was taking on the persona of Jeremiah. I know, it's hard to imagine. Hang in there. And imagine that I had heard from God, and I was now publicly declaring to you that the time is coming when our Constitution will be scrapped and rewritten. How would you react to that statement? What would you think? Right. Some people would think, well, hey, it's about time. That thing's outdated anyway. Let's get rid of it. There's got to be something better. And others who honor and value that document would think, you're crazy. Why would you want to replace this historic document that has played such a foundational role in how we relate to our government as American citizens? You see, the Constitution spells out the specifics of what we can expect from our government and what our government can expect from us. It's a document, a legal document, that specifies the terms of the relationship between our government and its citizens. And if I were to say to you, that document needs to be scrapped, I would certainly create quite a reaction either negative or positive. So would you be alarmed or would you be excited? Would you think I should be arrested for treason or do you think I should be elected to public office? Would you believe such a radical and outlandish claim or would you write me off as a nut if I said something like that? That, my friends, is a creative exercise to help you get in touch with the radical nature of what Jeremiah was saying in these verses we're looking at this morning. Let's be honest. Jeremiah is essentially declaring that God told him that the law, the covenant of the law, was going to be replaced with something better. And for Jeremiah, this wasn't just like 200 years of history. This was closer to 2,000 years of history. 2,000 years of how that document, 
that agreement, that covenant defined the relationship between God and his people. So let's think long and hard here about the nature of this promise that Jeremiah is making. And I want you to start with me by just considering what a covenant is. It's a word, a theological word, that gets bandied about by theologians, but it's not a word that's commonly used in the English language anymore unless you happen to turn up at a church now and then, right? So what is a covenant? Well, let me just lay it out for you here as our first insight of the morning. A covenant is a formal, relational pledge or agreement between two parties specifying the terms of their ongoing relationship. That's what it is. It's a a legal agreement, a binding agreement between two parties that specifies and stipulates the terms of their relationship. So again, as we think about this word, covenant, the first thing that we have to be aware of is the, the significance of this word in Scripture. This is a huge word. The word covenant, though it's not common in the English language of our day, is a word that's fundamental to our understanding of God's relationship with his people in history. It's fundamental to Scripture. But here's the challenge, right? It's not a word that we're all familiar with. It's not a word that you would likely find your kids texting to one another. So, you know, just, just picture pulling out your phone and you read a text message from your teenage daughter that says, Hey, D, how's the cove with M? Not likely to happen, is it? Not likely to happen. But don't tell me if it did happen that you wouldn't automatically assume there was some autocorrect and that, you know, like you'd be racking your brain trying to figure out what in the world your daughter really meant. Covenant is not a familiar term to many people. And yet, despite its old-fashioned charm, it's of great significance, great importance for us to understand. It's foundational to the study of theology. In fact, it's really one of the most important words in the Bible. Perhaps a few of you are already aware that the two parts of the Bible that we commonly refer to as the Old and New Testament could really be referred to in the same way as the Old and New Covenant. Did you know that's what testament means? For all the history and linguistic buffs out there, the Greek word diatheke means covenant, and that word was translated by the theologian Jerome in the 5th century AD into the Latin word testamentum which means the same thing. So diatheke, testamentum, covenant. The old, the books of the Old Testament describe the old covenant, and the books of the New Testament describe the terms of the new covenant that God has made with men and women. So what is a covenant relationship? 
Here's a definition that I found helpful from Pastor David Wilkerson, who wrote a book actually called The New Covenant Unveiled. And this is from the very first chapter as he kind of sets out to explain the nature of a covenant and its importance. Wilkerson writes, Today we would use the word contract to describe a covenant. And like any contract, a covenant contains terms or duties that each party has to perform in order to fulfill the agreement. Such covenants are legally binding. And once they've been finalized, the parties can be penalized for not fulfilling their respective terms. I was on the phone yesterday with Comcast trying to lower my bill and change my services. And, of course, they're wanting to lock me in to a contract for two years. I was not happy about that offer. But that's a side note. So, when we think about the word covenant, just translate in your mind the word contract. Contract. It's a contract relationship, a contractual relationship, but a relationship nevertheless. A covenant is a legally binding agreement that stipulates the terms of relationship between two different parties. And to be even more specific, there's a a certain type of covenant that was common in the Near uh, Eastern ancient world and that was actually copied or used. Maybe, I mean, it's the chicken and the egg, which came first. Maybe it was God's idea to begin with. But anyway, the form of the Near Eastern covenant uh, covenant discovered by archaeologists um, as common uh, among the governments of that day and age, that form is used precisely by the Lord in setting forth the Old Covenant that we find in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. It's a type of covenant called a suzerain vassal covenant. So the suzerain is the king, and the vassals are those who are subject to the king's reign. So a suzerain vassal covenant was typically written then to declare the greatness of the king but also to spell out what was expected of those who owed their allegiance to the king. It was a document that stipulated the the terms of the relationship between the king and his people. And these were common in ancient literature. What the vassal was required to do was spelled out both in principle and in detail. So this section of the covenant was often concluded with the requirement that the vassal would actually deposit his copy of the treaty or covenant in his temple where he was to occasionally read and study it in order to refresh his memory concerning his duties to the king. Then the final section of these treaties typically contained the blessings and curses of the suzerain. So if the stipulations were met by the vassal, then he would receive the the suzerain's blessings, which were listed in the covenant. But if the vassal failed to meet those stipulations, he would receive the suzerain's curses, which were also listed in the covenant. So as I describe this this framework to you, what I hope is that many of you are are already thinking about the implications of, of what we find in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy And 
considering the, the reality that God established a suzerain vassal covenant with his people. And the remarkable thing here is how consistently and carefully the old covenant of the law was written in this very particular form. First, who God is, as the suzerain is explained and defined, his greatness is declared. Then the the terms and the expectations of the vassals are explained and defined. And then the blessings and curses that come as a result of whether the vassals follow and and keep the covenant or break it, all all of those are defined at the end. Essentially, what I'm describing to you is the book of Deuteronomy. That's the structure with which the the entire book of Deuteronomy is written. And so it was then that God became known among his people as a covenant-keeping king. A covenant-keeping king. While they, on the other hand, failed again and again and again to keep covenant with God. And they thus became subject to the curses of the covenant they made. So this, by the way, then, is the essential backdrop to all of of the discipline and punishment that we've been reading about in the first 22 chapters of Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah is saying on God's behalf, look, people, you broke covenant with me, and these are the consequences. These are the curses that you must now suffer because you didn't keep your end of the covenant deal that we made. So in sending his people into exile under the Babylonians, God was simply fulfilling the curses that his people had agreed to be subjected to should they fail to keep their covenant with God. Now, with that backdrop in mind, listen again to the words of verses 31 and 32 in Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. You see, what these words tell us is actually something remarkable about the relational role of the covenants that God made with his people and his intention to make a covenant that could and would be kept. So let's think a little more deeply about the pattern of covenant making and some examples from the Old Testament. What I want you to see next here is that before Jeremiah's time, God made, in fact, two key covenants. There are other smaller ones that we could look at as well, but two specific covenants revealing his plans and promises to bless people. God's desire from the very beginning was to be in a relationship with his people by which they would receive his blessings. So the big picture point about all this covenant stuff is that God is relational by nature and God is a promise keeper, not a promise breaker. 
And so throughout the Bible, then, we see God revealing his plans of redemption through a series of covenants that he makes with mankind. We start with the, the story of the fall and the ruin of humanity in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And with that, the story of the covenants begins in Genesis chapter 12 with the story of Abram, who becomes Abraham. Essentially, that first covenant and the ones that followed are a story. They, they form a story about a king whose promise to love and care for his people even though they continue to rebel against his reign over their lives. So the Old Testament gives us two primary examples of this. And the first one, as I've mentioned just a moment ago, is, is known as the Abrahamic covenant found in Genesis chapter 12. This was a covenant, covenant promise given to Abraham and his descendants. And it was a promise, the promise of a land, a nation, and a blessing that would extend to all the nations of the earth. Look at these words with me from Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, we don't have time to unpack every single line of that incredible promise, covenant promise from God. But understand, this is God making a covenant with Abraham. It's a promise of how God will treat Abraham and his descendants and what God will do through them for the benefit of the whole world. And a few chapters later, in Genesis 15, we find the story of how God actually made this covenant. It's called cutting a covenant with Abraham. And God, in that instance, promised to keep this covenant himself and even to suffer the consequences if Abraham should break it. A remarkable story that I'd love to revisit with you on some other occasion. So this covenant promise was made to Abraham, and then it was renewed over the succeeding generations with Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob. And this first covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants was really, as you can see, an unconditional promise from God. It was God's word, God's agreement, God's commitment to bless people. But then we come to the story of Moses and what's known as the Mosaic Covenant, or it's also commonly referred to as the Sinai Covenant because it was a covenant made between God and his people through Moses. The covenant was delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai. And of course, you recall the story, right? When he he went up the mountain, God wrote the, the Ten Commandments upon the tablets of stone that Moses brought to him. And then Moses brought that, those tablets back down the mountain and explained them to the people of God. So this is the Mosaic Covenant, or the Covenant of the Law. And we read an introduction to this, uh, just the beginning uh, implications of what's about to take place in Exodus chapter 19. Then Moses went up to God, 
And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, here's the key verse right here, verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So here in verse 5, we begin to see the key difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. The first one was unconditional, but the second one was conditional. The blessings that God desired and intended for his people were to be obtained through their obedience to the law and their keeping of the covenant. If they were to fail to keep that covenant, then they would suffer the consequences. So here's where we have to circle back around again to the notion of our own constitution, just by way of illustration, and how it's shaped the the rights and values with which we live as Americans, right? For 200 years, this document has exerted great influence over how we live in relationship to our own government. Imagine that for a much longer period of time, the Mosaic law, the covenant of the law, exerted similar influence over the people of Israel and how they related to God. It was foundational. And Jeremiah here is declaring that it's going to change. Something better is on the way because the old covenant could not be kept by the people of God. So what, what these words of Jeremiah tell us is that the old covenant, which was conditional, was so consistently broken by God's people that he determined to replace it with a new and better one. In fact, he promised that the new covenant to come would not be like the old one. Right? Jeremiah 31, verse 32. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. So a new covenant was promised and needed because Israel did not and could not keep the covenant that God made with them at Sinai. That covenant was not designed to be enough. It was preparation for the new one yet to come. In other words, what I'm saying is that while the law itself is perfect, the covenant of the law that God made with his people was designed by God from the very beginning to be insufficient. What I mean by that is God had a purpose in mind with the covenant of the law. Do you know what it was? He wanted to show his people their desperate need for his grace. He wanted them to know that they couldn't keep it without his help, without his grace, without his power. It was faulty in a sense, not because God made something uh, 
that was imperfect, but because he designed it to show his people their need for something better. So that brings us then to Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34, where this new covenant is described and defined. And we're given really three specific ideas about this new covenant and what will characterize it, what will make it different from the old one, better than the old one. So let me take you then to one final insight here about this new covenant. What I want you to hear me say and, and, and what I long for you to understand is that this new covenant, in this new covenant, God promised that he would do for us what we can't do for ourselves or for him. That's what it amounts to. In this new covenant, God promised that he would do for us what we can't do for ourselves or for him. Does that sound like a good deal? Hello, anybody, anybody with me here? Let me remind you of a classic quote, speaking of American history. Here's a classic quote from JFK, right? You all know this one. Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country, right? That's a good one. But God's version is even better. You know what God says to you and to me? He says, don't tell me what you will do for me. Let me tell you what I will do for you. That's the heart of God. That's the essence of the new covenant. Don't tell me what you will do for me. Let me tell you what I will do for you. See, this is, uh, if I can kind of use a little humor here, at least I hope it's funny. This is what I would call an example of delegation failure. Have you ever experienced delegation failure? You know, when you ask somebody to do something and they can't do it up to your standards, so you have to do it yourself? Anyone? Anyone? Come on now. I mean, there are some people, and I won't mention any names, who have been known on occasion to not let their own kids mow the lawn because the lines won't be straight. Can anybody relate to this? Kim's laughing. I think that means he gets, he gets it. That's an example of um, over-perfectionism, right? Delegation failure. Delegation failure. Um, Here, I'd like you to do this. Uh, Wait a minute. You're not doing it right. Let me do it for you. Now, again, I know this is, you know, kind of humorous to think of it this way, but actually, if you stop and think about it, isn't that a good way to think about what God has done for us in the new covenant? Okay. You guys, here's what I want you to do for me. Um, You're not doing it very well. Let me do it for you. That's the heart of God at work in our lives. That's the grace of God in the new covenant that he's offered us. So in this new covenant, God promises that he will do for us what we can't do for ourselves or for him. You see, God is a perfectionist. He's perfect by his very nature. 
And that's not a fault for him. That's just the way he is, without sin. He never makes a mistake. He never does something wrong. He's perfect by his very nature. So what's the solution then to a broken covenant relationship between a perfect king and a bunch of imperfect vassals? Let's remake the covenant in a way that is harder for them to break. Let's remake the covenant so that the burden lies on me, the perfect king, rather than on them, the imperfect vassals. Let's make a new covenant that can't be broken by the imperfections and failures of the lesser party. So as we think about this together, I want you to notice and pay close attention to the nature of what God declares in verses 33 and 34. Essentially, there are three I statements that place the burden of keeping this covenant upon God himself by his own design. Notice, at the same time, the stunning lack of statements about what we are expected to do for him under this new covenant. There's nothing there. In other words, instead of buckling down on his expectations of people, God transferred those expectations from us to himself. Look closely at these three statements that God makes. It begins with the first one in verse 33, the beginning part of verse 33. God declares, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Think about that statement. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So this means God promised to write his law on our hearts. Let me explain what that means or put it another way. God's promising here to shift the law from an external obligation to an internal compulsion. You know the difference? It's the difference between a got to and a get to. He's taking the law from the realm of got to, you have to do this in order to be blessed, and he's putting it in the realm of a get to. You get to do this to honor me. You get to do this to serve me. You get to do this to glorify me. But you don't have to do it because I've fulfilled the law for you. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. You see, it's become internal. The law is written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. How does that work? Well, think about this. Let's be practical here, right? You remember how the first covenant was written on the tablets of stone by the finger of God? Moses goes up the mountain, carries these stone tablets, and and God inscribes on them with his own finger the Ten Commandments of the law. A remarkable story. Honestly, I mean, I think if somebody, actually, some archaeologist like Indiana Jones actually discovered the Ark of the Covenant and we were able to open it up and not die, it would be more fascinating to look at the tablets of stone written on by the finger of God than it would to look at the Ark of the Covenant itself. That'd be an incredible discovery, wouldn't it? And yet, here's what God's saying. As cool as that was, this is even better. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my finger and I'm going to write on your heart the essence of the law. How does that work? What does that mean? See, it's not as if God literally engraves the law, like the Ten Commandments, on your heart with his finger, is it? Right? This, we're not talking literal here. This is figurative language. What God's saying, essentially, is that by his Spirit, he's going to give us a heart to know and follow the law. He's going to help us. He's going to do this for us. So God had in mind a new covenant, not of the law, but of the Spirit, by which the law would be written in the minds and on the hearts of human beings. So picture that same finger of God. I know it's figurative, but picture it anyway, just writing upon your heart the law of God. If God were really writing some words on our hearts, let me give you the first one that I think matches up with this statement. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'm going to give you three examples of three words that I think God wants to write on your heart as a result of the new covenant that he's made and offered us. And the first word is holy. Holy. Think of your heart like one of those little candy hearts that kids give to each other at Valentine's Day, right? You know, the colored sugar ones that have the little white lettering inscribed on the, on the, on the front, etched on the surface. According to his promise and his initiative under the new covenant, God is making us holy as he is holy. He's committed to transforming our minds and hearts so that we are compelled to walk in holiness for the glory of his name. You see, of the, of the three features of the new covenant referred to in these verses, the first one here is that the new covenant brings inner transformation. The new covenant brings us inner transformation. The law of God is no longer external, but internal. God wants to change the minds and hearts of those who are connected to him by way of this new covenant so that our desire is to follow the law and to honor him. The new covenant doesn't do away with or renounce the law. It makes the law closer, makes it part of our heart and mind. It sets it in the mind and heart instead of on a stone tablet or a page. Here's a quote from the great preacher Charles Spurgeon who wrote about this very thing. He says, Things required by the law are bestowed by the gospel. Think about the difference. Required by the law, bestowed by the gospel. And then he spells it out. God demands obedience under the law. God works obedience under the gospel. Holiness is asked for of us by the law. Holiness is wrought in us by the gospel. So obedience to the law is not a prior condition for entering the new covenant. It is one of the promised blessings of the new covenant. God helps us to keep the law. 
and inspires us to keep the law. So it is that, that Paul actually addresses several of his letters to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and have become and are becoming his holy people. That's the way that Paul addresses the recipients of his letters. But let me take you a little further here to a second insight. Our time is waning here, so I want to just get on to the second one. There's a second I will statement. If the first one is I will place my law in their minds and write it upon their hearts, here's the second one. At the end of verse 33, God declares this, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then he kind of spells that out as if you might not understand immediately what that means. So verse 34 continues, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So this statement then is about knowing God, knowing who he is, not just knowing about him, but knowing him relationally. And it's about being known by him relationally. In other words, it's really about being loved. I will be their God and they will be my people. What's behind and beneath that statement is a relational knowledge of one another, a relational intimacy with one another, a love for one another that marks and defines this new kind of relationship. So when God says, I will be their God and they will be my people, what we should understand is that God wants to write on our hearts the word loved. You are loved by the God of the universe. He knows you and wants you to know him. He wants to be in a personal relationship with you and with me. So the new covenant doesn't just bring new righteousness and holiness from God. It also brings new relationship with God. Those connected to God by new covenant, by this new covenant, have personal, close relationship with God that they didn't and couldn't have before. They shall all know me, God says, from the least of them to the greatest. And of course, that's not yet been entirely fulfilled. But more and more people are coming to the knowledge of God all the time. Now, noticeably, this relationship with God had a a personal aspect to it that was new and different. Here's what one commentator writes about the significance of this shift from a corporate relationship to a personal relationship. He says, probably the most significant contribution which Jeremiah made to the religious thought was inherent in his insistence that the new covenant involved a one-to-one relationship in the Spirit. When the new covenant was inaugurated by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on Calvary, this important development of personal as opposed to corporate faith and spirituality was made real for the whole of mankind. Henceforth, anyone who submits himself consciously in faith to the person of Christ as Savior and Lord can claim and receive membership in the church of God. So God writes on your heart the word holy. That's how he sees you. That's how he relates to you. That's how he thinks of you. You are holy. 
And then he writes on your heart the word loved. You are loved by the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. He knows you and wants you to know him. And that brings us to the third I will statement in Jeremiah 31, 34. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the promise of God regarding the new covenant that was to come and that did come in and through the ministry of Jesus Christ. So if there's a third word that God wants to stencil onto our hearts, it's the word forgiven. Forgiven. The new covenant brings true cleansing from sin. The sacrificial system under the old covenant could only cover sin and its guilt. But the new covenant brings forgiveness so complete that it could be said that God no longer remembers the sins of those connected to him through the new covenant. Did did you catch that? This is remarkable, right? God doesn't just say, I'll forgive your sins. He says, and I will remember them no more. Just ponder that for a little while. There's a deep thought for the day. When God forgives your sins, he forgets your sins as well. And this new covenant, of course, that brings forgiveness to men and women like us who desperately need it, this new covenant is brought into effect by the work of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus specifically instituted this new covenant by his death on the cross. And he specifically instituted the recognition and remembrance of this new covenant with the bread and the cup that he shared with his disciples. So all this was future to Jeremiah's day, but it was put into effect by Jesus and specifically by his work of atoning sacrifice at the cross where he died on our behalf. So this morning, as we finish this up, I wanted to shift our our celebration of the Lord's Supper to the end of the message as opposed to the end of our worship set because each time we take the bread and the cup to our lips, I want you to recognize this is what we're doing. This is what we're saying. We are renewing the covenant that God has made with us. We are remembering the covenant, the new covenant that God has made with us. So honestly, it really comes right down to this. Every time you take the cup, every time you take the bread, every time you eat and drink as Jesus commanded you, it's as if God is declaring over you, you are holy, you are loved, and you are forgiven. Anybody need to hear that? That's what God says. That's what God declares over each and every one of us. You are holy, you are loved, and you are forgiven because of what I've done for you.
as we come to the table this morning, let's pray that those fundamental truths of the new covenant would indeed be written on our hearts.